Hi, and welcome once again to From the Center, a podcast by the Center for Western Studies. I'm Jack Val, on faculty at the Center for Western Studies, joined as always by my friend and colleague, the director of the Center for Western Studies, John Hodges. Sir, how are you doing today? I'm okay, Jack. I'm doing fine, thanks. I, I, uh, everybody's been suffering with this virus for so long, and we've been trying to get some things scheduled. It's kind of played havoc with some of our schedule, hadn't it? We Cry havoc! <laughs> let's slip the dogs of so food cro- uh, yeah, Let's slip the dogs of coronavirus. Coronavirus, right. Yeah, it's, been, it's been a wild time. It's been weird. Yeah, it's good that we can get together in person and do this. I think we did one, actually, on, uh, online, didn't we? We did. Um, yeah. But I thought uh, it might be wise for us to try and, uh, you know, we just finished up our year, right? So we had our closing dinner the other day. Uh, and what we like to do at the end of the year every year, of course, is to talk about uh, the most recent developments in the history of ideas. And often that's associated with what we call postmodernism. Mm. Well, that's a, that's a fishy word, a difficult word to sort of pin down. Uh, but I thought since our young people are going to be going off to college and they're going to have to address a lot of faculty probably that are going to uh, assume some of these things, yeah. uh, it's good for them to get a little taste of it anyway before they go off, don't you think? Yeah, I agree. So <clears throat> what we did, I guess, was talk about, um, well, you gave, I know, a long lecture uh, uh I didn't, that didn't sound right. It was a good. It was a good. You it gave was a, a long, you know, long, boring lecture. No, no. You gave. A, you you tried to give a kind of background for all this by by uh, going back into what we call modernism, really all the way back to Descartes, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Uh, and talked about uh, rationalism and empiricism and the two of those coming together in Immanuel Kant, and then on into. Uh, influential thinkers of the 19th century that laid the seeds for the 20th century. It was a kind of a long overview, but it was worth it. It was worth every minute. And I think uh, I've heard some good things from the students about that, about that lecture. So I thought maybe what we could do is recreate a couple of bits of that here. Um, not so much the entire lecture, but, sure. but just some ideas that we think are important to understand about you know, how things are today in the in the world of, uh, of uh, postmodern ideas. Yeah. Where would you go start for something uh, like this? Where would I start? Um, one, I guess one place I would start, so I would start with the sort of contemporary confusion and then go back to the roots and work my way forward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So like contemporary confusion-wise, postmodernism is almost... Sometimes for some people, like, passe or just kind of like, yeah, whatever, of course. I remember watching a YouTube video that PPS does that I can't even remember the name of it, so I apologize to it. But it's a guy who does, like, video essays. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about postmodernism. And he said, let's talk about postmodernism. And for about, and let's just give five seconds for all the art majors, philosophy majors, and, you know, history of idea majors to just go, oh. <laughs> And we're done. It's like, so it's like even even he was assuming that people are just like, oh my gosh, really? Like we're going to talk about it? Yeah. There's some. I, I'm I'm not sure where that comes from. I'm. It's probably a confluence of things. Probably there's a certain pretentiousness about it because it's a very hip, cool, and groovy thing when it first came out. There's a lot of 
confusion about it, which creates a lot of uh, demonization about it, sometimes mm-hmm. self-inflicted demonization. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also there's a lot of signs that we're moving beyond it, that we've gone past That's it. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. We, we've... <laughs> how can you go past post-modernism? But post-modernism is a, is a thing by itself, so you can have post yeah. Postmodernism, can't you? Yeah, there's an attempt. Oh, there's like post-postmodernism, which is just stupid. But then there's <laughs> metamodernism, which is more interesting, I guess. And then, I mean, I, people don't know what to call it yet. Part of me hopes we get done with calling it modernism because I don't know. Modern just feels like a lazy word sometimes. Well, it does, doesn't it? I know what you mean. Uh, when in art history you talk about modern art, and you either are talking about the, the stuff that started in the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, or you're talking about everything from 1400 on is right. called modern, isn't it? Or you're talking about anything within the last five years, like modern or Yeah, or, or most like recent, yeah, exactly, like in the last six months on the runways. It seems to me that it would be better if we could figure out a term that would go along with the mindset that started with Descartes and worked its way through till, I don't know, just after the Second World War, mm-hmm. uh, and then have a term for what we see happening in the 60s and 70s and, and uh, forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, in many cases, I think uh, the, the two of them are not unrelated. No, it's no. not like one is, one is the opposite of the other, yeah. but there has been a kind of a uh, rejection of something, it seems to me, since the since the 60s in particular. But it was brewing earlier than that, but um, since the 60s. That, that is, a, is a kind of irrationalism. Would, would you, is that a fair, fair assessment? Yeah, I mean... Kind of, it's, it's like you're, you're saying, I doubt that reason can help me get what it is I'm looking to get. And so maybe there's a way to to embrace a kind of irrationalism. Yeah, the paradox, I would say the paradox of it is it's like a rationalist irrationalism, if uh-huh. I can put it that way. Because uh-huh. you asked me, like, the term for whatever it is that, like, Descartes had. Because yeah. in trying to study and understand this stuff, one thing I kept noticing is every year that went by, as I was, like, studying more and more to, like, teach the postmodern uh, class or the lecture... Uh, my dates for how this thing starts kept backing up. Oh, yeah. Like, it just kept backing up, backing up. kept seeing more and more roots of what was going on. And currently, and this may be where I stop, I don't know, but currently, like, Descartes is a good place to start because he's considered the father of the Enlightenment, and I say he's a good place to start. He didn't exist in a vacuum. He was responding to things that came before him. That's right. But he's good enough anyway because... He, I guess, would embody what I would call, uh, just off the top of my head, rationalist humanism. Mm-hmm. All right. So it has a high view of humanity. We are the pinnacle of creation or you know, nature or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and what makes us the pinnacle of, of uh, all of creation or nature is our reason. Right. Our capacity to know, our capacity to observe. Our capacity to do the platonic intellectual gesture of rising out of the cave of shadows into the sunshine. Mm -hmm. We can do that. Mm -hmm. And for Descartes, that sort of core of reason, that core of mind or consciousness or the ability to do that 
is what you know helped him ground his entire philosophy in a lot of ways. Right. It's how he beat his the dream and the demon, which if you want to know what those are, just Google them, Descartes' dream or Descartes' demon. But it basically was how he was able to uh, say how he knows existence exists and how God exists and stuff like that because he could start with himself. Right. 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 The one thing he couldn't doubt. And that's the unique thing about him, isn't it? You, yes. You might find in, I mean, even as far back as as Plato, you don't you don't think Plato is rejecting some kind of transcendent reality. He's he in starting with himself alone. That's mm-hmm. that's unique to Descartes. But yeah. But uh, between Plato and Descartes, throughout the the certainly the Christian era. You find uh, a kind of a an interaction between man's reason and the and revelation, what yeah. what it is that God has said to us, God, the Christian or Jew, Jewish God, <clears throat> but before that, even uh, other gods uh, that people took as as authoritative. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly, Islam later than Judaism and Christianity, Islam does the same sort of thing, referencing. Uh, um, uh, 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 revelation from from God. Whether you believe it or not, that's not my point. Right. The the point is that they held some sort of transcendent reality outside of the natural world and the the physical world and the or the we could even say the rational world, because uh, even Descartes wasn't saying I'm only going to think in terms of the physical world. He was thinking uh, my reason can 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 grasp. Uh, the, the the transcendent, as it were, and uh, but it's the question of whether that that reason is done without any kind of unalloyed from revelation, yeah. un- unconnected, disconnected from revelation. Right, and for a rationalist, I mean, rationalism in itself centers everything in reason. Right, that's what that word means. A rationalist humanism, because it particularly notices how the human being, the human person, is uniquely suited. To this sort of rational enterprise, right? And we've been especially gifted or endowed to sort of spread the light of reason across all of humanity, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. all 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 the world. And Descartes, I'm not going to say whether he like started that idea or not, but he did seem to like kickstart something. Where for the next 200 years, that sort of rationalist humanism that defines the Enlightenment was sort of a dominant discourse yeah. at the time. Yeah, uh, there were people who sort of had ins and outs with it and different views on it and stuff like that, from like Leibniz to Berkeley to Hume and all that, to Kant, and then probably gets its apotheosis in Hegel. But still, they're all working in the same sort of parameters. The reason, particularly human reason, is something special and unique and positions human beings as that which is transcendent. All right, There's this concept called the transcendent or the transcendental subject. That's who mm-hmm. you are. Mm-hmm. Right? You are capable of standing outside and you can rise above the minutia and the particulars of life and get a God's eye view of it because you have reason. So in a sense, we're deifying reason. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like that. Yeah, and I want to make a distinction between reason and rationalism. Oh. And I think it's this point because uh, reason is a perfectly wonderful thing and it's the exercise that we do to engage with all sorts of things in the world, including the transcendent invisible world which requires revelation to be able to comprehend or to apprehend. Mm-hmm. Uh, but rationalism is a different animal. Rationalism is taking that ability and raising that ability up to the highest level and saying that is our 
greatest uh, authority, yes. our greatest, our summum bonum, as we say, mm-hmm. our highest good. And <clears throat> so that, I think, is where the thing changes. That's, that's a, significant, a significant change. It may not be that Descartes himself was intending to get rid of God or to eliminate him or put him second somehow. But I think in the 200 years you're talking about, um, before, before we get the sort of full-blown enlightenment uh, in the 18th century, you, he's laid the groundwork for that. Mm-hmm. He and the ones you mentioned, Leibniz and Hume and Barclay in particular, uh, doing a lot of empiricism, that is, uh, believing that, uh, that what we know is based on how we sense the, the world. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so the combination of those rationalists and those empiricists culminate, I think, in the in the Enlightenment. Um, but what I want to make that distinction now because I think a lot of times people want to reject rationalism, but what they say they're doing is rejecting reason. Yeah. See, and I, that's going to pay off, I think, when we start getting into what we're going to call postmodernism or whatever we're going to call it. Right. I agree, and like the Enlightenment is a rationalist humanism. It deifies reason, therefore it deifies the human, particularly right. the human that is all reason, mm-hmm. uses the reason. Um, bit of a thorny subject, but there's also a consequence that rationalist humanism also kind of deifies or at least gives an outsized reverence to uh, the works of a rational human. So mm-hmm. their society, their civilization, their art uh, is not just beautiful in its own right or unique in its own right beautiful in its own right it is vastly superior to all other oh. to all other civilizations and all other peoples and clearly we have to you know all these other civilizations who aren't like us have to be made in our image because clearly we're god's gift to existence mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and so like i said that's a thorny subject because that can lead in all kinds of post-colonial claptrap that i'm really not interested in getting into <laughs> but it's not for nothing that this attitude of superiority can come in. Right, right. right. It's, not, it's not enough to just... It's like when you, when you deify God, then you can appreciate God wherever you find him. Right, right. His right. beauties, his right. truth, and his goodness, right. no matter what the civilization or the people or whoever they are or how they talk, how they act, or whatever. You find it, you can always appreciate him. And that allows for us to be properly, I think... Uh, epistemologically humble. Yeah. Right. And especially if, like, well, every human being is in the image of God, then there's like a baseline. There is no grounds for superiority over another person because you can look at any person uh, and see, like, the glory of God in them. That's right. Based on that point. That's right. But if you deify reason, then you, you appreciate reason by the way you define it, which is it divorced from any other consideration, any other thing. Right. Wherever you find it, which means if you don't find it, then you're like, well, that's not as nearly as important or superior. Can justify judgment. Yeah, I can justify all kinds of icky things. Like I said, yeah. we're not going to get into it because it's a thorny thing, but that's there too. Right, right. So for like 200 years or so, that like is part of the main discourse. It's usually in the mid to late 1800s that you start seeing the first sort of assaults on that thing. All right, assaults on the rational, the rational, the rationalist humanism. Um, some of the assaults are like 
straight up they're going right for its jugular because that's what they're after. Some of them were didn't would not have called themselves assaults on that. They would have thought that they were perfectly in keeping mm-hmm. with rationalist humanism, but somehow their ideas got picked up by other people and turned into assaults. Mm-hmm. Basically, by the time the, the seeds are planted in the late 19th century and then by the mid the mid 20th century, like maybe 100 years later, they fully bloom into the postmodern mindset, which if the Enlightenment mindset from Descartes forward is like a rationalist humanism, it's not wrong to say postmodernism is a kind of irrationalist anti-humanism. Hmm. Uh, don't forget that paradox, though, about how it still is kind of rationalist because they're still using rationalist stuff. But it is a an assault on the idea of rationalism and even humanism itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we have to back up who were like the ones who first assaulted the idea of rationalist humanism. Yeah, and, uh, and that assault uh, turns out to be, like you say, reasonable, rational, sort of using reason in order to establish establish that you can't make reason the be-all and end-all, uh, which is, seem, seems like a contradiction in terms. Yeah. It? But, uh, but there's, <laughs> I, as a Christian, I actually I agree with some of it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, I, I, I find myself saying, yeah, you can't just eliminate uh, revelation from your understanding uh, of the world and trust in your reason completely. There's a kind of arrogance in that that i find distasteful at worst at best yeah. and misguided you know misguiding let's say at worst uh and yet the alternative and this is where that other my, my point about the difference between reason and rationalism comes in um the alternative seems to be in some people's minds to reject reason mm-hmm. and to reject reason is 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 a different thing than rejecting rationalism so while i agree with them that they should reject this idea of, of a kind of autonomous rationalism, uh, we can't reject reason. In fact, like you say, we don't. No, we <laughs> we're, don't. Still, we're still reasoning about what it is we're rejecting. Right. We're still reasoning. What is it? Chesterton said. Uh, Chesterton? Right. Which Chesterton. Is, yeah, who is this Chesterton you keep Former president, I believe. Chesterton B. Arthur. B. Arthur. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fam- Gee, was he really? He said a lot of great things. Yeah, he was also married to B. Arthur. He <laughs> um, <laughs> So I didn't know that. So Chesterton, <laughs> Chesterton said that the mind is free to destroy itself. Uh huh. All right, which is basically that thought can destroy thought. You can. There is a thought that ruins thought. Right. Yeah. It can. It can. It can destroy itself if it has no. If it has nothing that sort of tempers it and sort of you know disciplines and guides it in any way and gives it sort of its limitations, it can destroy itself. And like what did Francis, Francis Schaeffer wrote about escape from reason? Yes. And it's sort of like reason can't give me a meaningful world, therefore the only solution is to leap out of it. Right. Right. Of course, it's not reason, it's rationalism that can't give you a meaningful world. But like you said, they make that error. Yeah. And because they're rejecting technically rationalism, you're right that it can create a lot of confusion. This is what I said about the confusion earlier. Postmodernism these days, like especially growing up in like, uh, evangelical American culture. If you ever taken apologetics classes, um, you know postmodernism is like a great bugbear. You know, it's like it's this great evil. There are other Christians who argued that it's the best thing that's happened to Christianity since mm-hmm. I don't know the Holy Spirit fell or something like that. Uh, I don't buy that, but I understand the confusion because, like you said, it is an assault on something that, as Christians, we say is incorrect. Right. And right. it does get really frustrating, especially lately, when I find myself arguing against a rationalist mindset and I find I'm like quoting 
or I'm like thinking almost verbatim Foucault. And I'm like, no, oh, not yeah, Foucault. Yeah, yeah. No one expects Foucault. But, <laughs> you know. It's like the Spanish Inquisition. I know. So, yes, it is that rejection of the rationalism and the humanism. Uh-huh. Of the Enlightenment. And like I said, the seeds of that rejection, they blossomed in like the middle of the 20th century and kind of went from like, oh, I don't know, let's say like the 1960s to like 2000. Uh-huh. So let's, let's just give that rough kind of thing. Uh-huh. But the seeds were planted in like from before that from like 1850s or the early 20th century. Right. We've got, we've got some pretty powerful thinkers or influential, let's say, thinkers uh-huh. uh, in the middle of the 19th century that... Uh, like Darwin, but maybe more, maybe more uh, Marx. Yes, uh, and uh, and uh, who Freud maybe Freud and um, and uh, a lot of people say that the proto postmodernist was Nietzsche. Yes, but I would argue that you can. You, I think you could make an argument that Marx and Freud both are still thinking in a modernist mindset. Yes, that is that kind of progressive mindset that says we're on we're on the verge of the next big thing. Yeah, thing. Marx is like that, you know. Very much like that. Uh, but at the same time, they lead, they they plant seeds that actually uh, result in a kind of 1960s yeah. uh, fruit, don't they? Yeah, Marx is a strange irony, which I'll get into in a second. But you're right that, like I like I said earlier, the assaults that came, some of them were direct assaults. And others didn't see themselves as assaults at all. They thought they were perfectly in keeping with right. humanism. Right. But somehow their ideas got taken up by others in the 20th century and turned into, well, straight-up assaults on rationalist humanism. Uh, in cultural criticism, there's something called the hermeneutics of suspicion. Yes. Which, if people don't know, a her- hermeneutic means like a mode of interpretation. Like your pastor does a hermeneutic when they study the Bible. Right. Usually when you run into that word, it's often in like biblical studies courses and stuff like that. But it's, it's a kind of interpreting of things. Yes. Well, the hermeneutics of suspicion, which is coined by a guy who's a French guy whose name I forgot, like Paul Racour or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, he coined it and he said that the hermeneutics of suspicion is one of the main ways that sort of the 20th century mind works some way. And he pinned the hermeneutics of suspicion tale on three particular donkeys that he said were like the architects of suspicion or the masters of suspicion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And they were Marx and Nietzsche and Freud, right? And the reason he sort of pinned that tale on those particular donkeys of the suspicious apocalypse is because... Uh, man, that was a really tortured image. I'm sorry. Uh, it is because all three of them gave a sort of method of thinking or a kind of analysis of the modern world yeah. that could be used to question the rationalist humanist mm-hmm. faith, mm-hmm. if I could put it that way. All three of them did it in different ways. Like I said, Marx and Freud wouldn't have seen themselves as like enemies of humanism or rationalism. Nietzsche, I don't know if he would have worded it that way, but he was definitely like everything that came before him was garbage, except the Greeks. The, the Greeks were pretty nice. But like everything from like Christianity forward to him was basically garbage, including the rationalist humanism that he had come to sort of inherit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Marx still sees himself as a rational humanist, but why Marxism could lay the seeds for like doubting rationalism and doubting yeah, humanism? Okay, so 
Orthodox Marxism, like classical Marxism, which I have to distinguish that because it's gone through some weird changes and transmutations yeah. over the last hundred years or so. But classical Marxism posits that people are products of historical material forces. Right. All right. So by historical material, it's an interesting word because like by material, it's their materialism. You know, what's ultimate is matter. And matter is dynamic and, you know, is creative and fecund and all that stuff. It, it there's a certain inevitability about the progress of material world. The world is going right. to go in a certain direction. They look at materiality and they see a progression right. know, from just inert matter to organic matter to sentient matter to the heights of human reason. They, they see that sort of progression. Uh, human, human beings are like the height of material progress. You know, because of our ability to reflect upon ourselves. Uh, the historical is suggesting that you're part of the long uh, tradition, might not be the right word, but I can't think of another one, the long tradition of human action, mm-hmm. right? Because human beings are, are also material forces and materialism, right? right? So it's not just matter just sort of working its way out blankly or on its own. There's also human actors and agents who are also products of matter, but also are producers of it. So it's like a weird dynamic. So the historical material is supposed to represent that sort of dynamic that's right. going on. We make we are made of matter. We make history. History reshapes matter that reshapes us, and on and on goes the cycle. And eventually, human beings then get divided into categories economically because some go in the we have, we'll establish a kind of a capitalist society, a feudalist society first, and then a capitalist society. And then eventually, he predicts that everything is going to be overthrown and turned into a socialist or right. a communist. In Marxism, societies are organized economically. Which to understand that word, you got to understand like the old school. Yeah, it's not just about how much money they have. Right, right. Oh, like economics is from the Greek because, of course, it is. Uh, uh, oikos nomos means the the rule of the house or the law of the house. Right, right. If you like, you know, at your own house out there, you know, certain rooms are for certain purposes. There are certain things that you do inside versus outside or outside. You know, don't do that in here. Take that outside. Or you find something like this doesn't belong here. It belongs in the laundry room. <laughs> right. You know, these persons have these chores and so on and so forth. That's that's the economy of that house. Right. Right. Kind of the organization of it. Yeah, the organization of it. A material, physical organization. It's very right. concrete. Right. So when Marxism talks about economy or economics, they're talking about sort of fundamental material organization of stuff. Right. 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 Well, how that stuff gets organized usually creates inevitably a group of haves and a group of have-nots because the stuff usually gets organized in a way that benefits others and they get on top and there's a whole few of them and a whole bunch of the others who don't have. And eventually the system can't sustain itself because you have too many people who don't have versus those that do have and those that don't have rise up in rebellion. That's right. And then they set up a new system that's sort of a new economic order. You know, uh, that sets up a, that privileges them, you know, puts them on. And then they sort of solidify themselves. And then eventually throughout the generations, they become the new haves. And that creates new have-nots. And again, becomes untenable. Those have-nots revolt, blah, blah, blah. Uh, You know, the feudalism was overthrown by whoever the have-nots were then. The uh, 
aristocratic world was overthrown by the bourgeois. The French Revolution. Right, that's what the French Revolution really was. It was middle class revolting against the upper class, the, arist- the aristocratic class. That's right, that's right. And now the bourgeois are in charge and the, you know, the, the middle class, the middle class right. the merchants and the, and the capitalists, those who like own the means of production. And of course that creates another giant swath of have-nots, the proletariat, the workers, the laborers. And Marx predicted that as it inevitably happened with all the other things, the system will become unsustainable, and it will again create tensions, which will end in a political revolution, which will create an economic revolution, and so on and so forth. All right? Right. That's how it's supposed to work. And he was absolutely certain that the time was near. All right? That's why communism and socialism as well. But communism itself as an idea kind of exploded throughout the late 19th century and really grained, 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 <laughs> gained momentum Last right. thing you have in a communist society is grain. Gained, mom- <laughs> I'm sorry, gained momentum into the 20th century. But he really thought that, you know, the tensions were high enough and the sort of plight of the working class was enough to where at some point revolution was going to happen. That's right. right? It was That's just right. going to happen. And he started calling on the proletariat to rise up and take their rightful place. Right. End of the, the Communist Manifesto is all about workers of the world unite. So you have... So you have this class system that that eventually uh, overthrows one one class overthrows the other, and um, and so so you have this this call for this to happen, but it's this inevitable thing. He thought it was inevitable, right? Historically yeah. speaking, that it was going to happen, but it wasn't going to happen fast enough. Right. So you need to help it along a little bit, and that's where you get so many of what they. Yeah. see as revolutions. Yeah, Marx's attitude towards like violent revolution was curious because on the one hand, he said that that's probably what was going to happen. Yeah. On the other hand, he spoke of it like, well, if we could avoid it, it would be nice. But I mean, it's probably going to happen. So he was cagey on it, but his attitude was, well, it's just going to happen inevitably. You get into like the late 19th and definitely the early 20th century, you get like, say, Lenin, who has his vanguard version of marxism where he's like you know what the revolution needs a kick so let's kickstart the revolution that's right. that's right the revolution the, the the workers need the party right the vanguard who goes first and like makes clears the ground and like gives them all the social capital and political power and leverage they need to like make things happen that's right but it's going yeah right it's going to be inevitable it's going to happen it's just that it's not hap- if it's not happening fast enough maybe what we need to do is just give it a little help right so, yeah, so, yeah, you know, there's an interesting story. This may be a little sideline, but we'll cut it out if we need to. But, um, you know, the, the First World War was going on, and Germany was very concerned that Russia was going to open up a front against them uh, on the east. You know, they hear they were fighting in France, right, fighting the English and the, and the French and, and eventually the Americans in, in the west. Uh, but on the, they didn't want Russia to come in and fight them on the other side of Germany, on the east side of Germany. And they came up with this clever idea to give a bunch of money to this exiled guy, Vladimir Lenin, who they found, I think, in Switzerland someplace. And they put him on a train and sent him back to Moscow in whatever it was, 1916 maybe, or early 17, something like that, 1917. Mm-hmm. And uh, and sure enough, he fomented this this big revolution that kept Russia from having the kind of single-mindedness of being able to start into against Germany. Yeah. And it was 1917 that the Russian Revolution happened. Divide, divide their focus. Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. So in a sense, the Germans are responsible <laughs> for the for the Russian Revolution. The Germans were responsible for a lot in the early 20th century. <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? But the but the uh, Russian Revolution seems to me uh, uh, in the, of the same spirit as this Marxist. French Revolution, it's anachronistic, of course, to say, because Marx was after the French Revolution. Right. But in a sense, Marx personifies or, or uh, encapsulates that same spirit of the French Revolution and then f- through Lenin gets it focused into uh, yeah. uh, what goes on in Moscow and, and Soviet Soviet Union comes as a result of it. So the question would be twofold. One, how is Marx himself technically just another rationalist humanist mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. And two, how then does Marxism get used to be an irrationalist anti-humanist? Mm-hmm. How does that happen? Mm-hmm. So to the first one, Marx is a rationalist humanism is, uh, is actually pretty easy. On the rationalist side, the great sort of shield he put up around his uh, way of thinking and his methodology and his economic ideas and his cultural criticisms was that his was scientific. Uh-huh. Right? That was his great, that was he and Engels' uh, great pretense about Marx, or about communism. I don't know if they didn't call it Marxism at the time, but like about communism and this way of thinking about things was that it was scientific. Right. Whereas other things were utopian mm-hmm. or they're bourgeois. Mm-hmm. Right, like bourgeois, I, bourgeois ways of thinking all throughout the Communist Manifesto, which everybody needs to read just to get aware of all this stuff. Their constant retort to complaints about what they were doing, like one of their main retorts was constantly, "Well, you're only thinking that way because that's a you're thinking bourgeois. You know, mm-hmm. you're thinking in bourgeois categories and not scientific categories." So he saw himself perfectly in like a rationalist sort of mindset, like we're doing this scientifically. Right. This is based on observation and in deduction from facts and from information. We're hypothesizing our observations and we're yeah. putting forward this theory. So that's the rational side. The humanist side, Marxism, at least from Marx's standpoint, was all about emancipation of the human being. Right. Now we're really getting to the core of it, I think. Yeah, which people, I mean, this side of the Cold War, everybody kind of forgets that that's what that was. Yeah. But yeah. for Marx... The goal of all this was communism, and communism was the classless, stateless society where everybody was finally free to produce the selves that they want to produce. They're no longer they have they own an equal share of the means of production so that they can produce what they want. Right. And it ends alienation, it ends all the kind of, you know boogeyman of the 19th century and early 20th century. It, it basically was, this is how we achieve emancipation. How do we do it? We have to get rid of the state. We have to get rid of classes, haves and have-nots, and that gets rid of the state. And once we get rid of that, there's no more oppression. There's only emancipation. And don't forget, get rid of private property. Right, right. Because the, the key to individualism is you claim... This is yours, right? right? This is yours. But everything belongs to everybody. But yeah, if you have private property, then you can claim a kind of individualism, right? You can be different than your neighbor. 
But uh, if you if everybody's property becomes common property, commune property, communal property, then uh, then individualism goes by the wayside, and eventually, then you can have a classless society of all equals. It needs to be noted that I don't know if Marx ever called himself a rationalist humanist or used rationalism. Right, humanism. we're making these t- we're using right. these terms here, trying to just trying to show that by his pretense to science, science being scientific. And the end goal being the emancipation of the human person. Right. That's rationalist. That's humanist. Right. Because right? humanism, divorced from any sort of like religious architecture, is about the, the emancipation of the human person. Their right. their freedom so that they can fully be themselves. Yes. Yes. Right? Or be the best that they can be. You be you. You be you kind of thing. So that's how Marx fits in as a rational humanist. But how does Marxism fit into the idea of sort of an irrationalist humanist, anti-humanism. Now, I have to be careful here because, like I said, once you get into the 20th century, Marxism goes through all kinds of weird transformations and transmutations and stuff. Uh, I won't go into, like, Gramsci and the Frankfurt School, uh, just to say that they're sort of an inheritor of a sort of rationalist humanist Marxism. All right? They're like updated Marxism. All right? The thing is that after like the 50s and 60s, there was Marxist thinking that sort of interwove with a bunch of other thought. And what was taken from Marxism wasn't so much the sort of scientific pretense because a lot of economic theories since Marx kind of debunked all his economic. Yeah. Uh, nor was it the humanism exactly, the emancipation, but it was this notion that human beings are productions of forces outside themselves. Mm. All right, which is what the materialism kind of results in. You are not a product of yourself, of your own will, of your own mind. As a matter of fact, your will and your mind are productions of historical material forces. Right. Right? You're you're a product of that. And that problematizes the the two prongs of rationalist humanism. It it problematizes reason, or uh, the rationalist conception of reason. Mm-hmm. Because in rationalism, reason is this transcendent thing that can rise above and see and have kind of a God's eye view of things. That's right. That's a really good point because we've talked about deifying reason and making it into rationalism. That it's still making a claim to know a transcendent truth. It's not just giving up the idea of transcendent truth, but as soon as you bring in the idea that even your mental facilities or faculties are somehow shaped and molded and adjusted by your history, your upbringing, your social social connections, your economic connections, all those things, that, that that's all conditioned, then you have to start doubting that transcendent aspect of reason yeah it's not you who's thinking right right it's your society that's thinking through you right and your society is a product of the society that came before it and that it rebelled against that means it's really kind of in a weird way that your society is society thinking through Mm -hmm. and so on and so forth but definitely this idea of it's not you who's thinking it's your society that's thinking through you i mean it's not you're not actually transcending anything as a matter of fact to think to claim to be thinking rationally is actually to be deeply mired and embedded in the non-transcendent. Right? Mm-hmm. You're, you're just that. Mm-hmm. So it attacks the idea of a rationalist conception of reason. And it kind of attacks humanism in a way because if you are simply a product of forces outside yourself, then yes. obviously it's the forces outside yourself that are 
prior and superior and not you. Right. You know, what matters is not you. As a matter of fact, there's an argument, and in the most extreme forms of postmodernism, they make this argument, but there's an argument that you don't even exist. Mm -hmm. You are just in a a hologram produced, projected by historical materials, social forces, right? That's all you are. Personal forces. Yeah, completely impersonal. Right. right? They're just moving through history and time, and they've just made what they've just, you are a product of those things. But if you adopt that kind of mindset, look what it does to your trust in reason, in, or in the, in the product of reason, anyway. Look what it does to your a sense of, of well, authority over your world a little, too. You, it doubts everything, doesn't it? It takes, it takes that, that old doubting that, that uh, Descartes did many years back, late 1500s, and, uh, and applies it to the thing that is doing the doubting, the self there that's doing the doubting, or the, at least the tools that the self is using, uh, and, and annihilates the self. It loses that self. Mm-hmm. So it's funny that you, if you start with reason and you give up uh, uh, individual, individuality so that you're a part of a class and not so much a part of a... You eventually get to the point that we're talking about. So it's, a, it's, a, it's a, it, hardly seamless, I guess, but, it, but it's a, an arc that makes sense. It goes in the same yeah. direction all the way to this point of doubting uh, whether yourself actually exists. Yeah, in, in the name of intellectual honesty, we will admit that this is complicated because there are, is still... It's like Marxist influence. Right. There's right, still right. Marxism today that's like a Gramscian, Frankfurtian Marxism, which we won't get into right now, but that's very much still rationalist, very much still sees itself as humanist, and hates this kind of postmodern Right, right what, right. what would Jordan Peterson call it? The postmodern neo-Marxist, right? That kind it of is thing. interesting. He compares those or connects those two together, yeah, right? There are, mar- there, are Marxists out, there are Marxists out there that hate Just that, that sure. hate that thing. It's not an incorrect description because the hermeneutics of suspicion is a weird hybrid of psychoanalysis and Marxism and uh, Nietzsche, who's the great postmodernist. Mm-hmm. But I mean, yeah, there's plenty out there. I just, I just, uh, like people like you know, old, you know, classical Marxists like Terry Eagleton or uh, what's her name, Valerie Scadamberlo, I think, whatever their names are. Her. But they're Mark, they're Marxist thinkers who openly say a. This postmodernity stuff is not Marxism. B, Marxism didn't really help. And C, true Marxism has to get back to talking about truth and ethics and all that type of humanist stuff. Right? Yeah, and, and true, true postmodernism, truly postmodern sort of irrationality, wouldn't even list A, B, and C. Yeah. <laughs> it's this, the very system you're using to describe this is, is itself not postmodern. So, yeah, I get that. So. I, and I think... Um, the idea of shifting slightly your your divisions of people in from economic divisions to cultural divisions mm. uh, is the same. It's the same spirit. It's the same idea of of dividing people into several, into two groups and then pitting those groups against each other. The bourgeois and the, and the proletariat, for example, or earlier the French Revolution, the, the the aristocrats and the bourgeois, right? But now you now you divide them into black and white, or you male and female, or pro-homosexual marriage and anti-homosexual marriage, or anything else you can think of to divide people into groups and then get them to duke it out. Pro-abortion, anti-abortion, you know, whatever. Um, and, but, the, but the goal, it seems to me, is the same goal, and that's a very modernist 
rationalist goal, which is to bring about this revolution, to bring about this change, right, that's supposed to happen inevitably. And wherever I can find uh, that place to sort of stick the wedge in and and make make tension point it will help bring about the uh, the end that we want that's a very marxist end. right so there's a marxist inspired kind of postmodernism that uses that historical material thing right to problematize reason and even human beings centrality in things um, there's a good old classical Marxism that's been reinvented through Gramsci and the Frankfurt School that's very much rationalist and very much still humanist in a lot of ways. I would say that they still don't get off the hook because they're still tied up in the hermeneutics of suspicion because from the Frankfurt School we get critical theory, which is probably the most brutal application of the hermeneutics of suspicion there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the kind of just debunking and seeing through everything. The assumption that everything is capitalist propaganda and you have to see through it right. in order to be uh, awakened to what's actually going on around you. And that's where you get a lot of this this uh, literary criticism too, isn't it? That, mm-hmm. that uh, you have to see through a Shakespeare play or through a Milton epic or whatever uh, in order to see the sort of social constructs behind it and the influences behind it and all that. So that's an extremely rough sketch of how Marx was considered himself rational, should be considered a rational humanist, and yet Marxism contributed to postmodernism. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a very interesting interesting evaluation of Marxism because I think people would assume that that's that he's not postmodern but it's interesting but there it's not enough to just say like we said at the beginning it's not enough to just say that the postmodernism and the modernism that we're talking about are somehow in opposition to one another they have the same uh, same thought behind them Marx and Nietzsche are too big of thinkers too influential of thinkers for them to not have for postmodernism to not have been a part of them somehow, like or been uh, t- right. influenced by them in some way, probably Nietzsche more than Marx, but still. Yeah, the reason I would say Nietzsche is proto postmodernism, real, honest to goodness, pro postmodernism, that kind of irrationality, is that he doesn't hold to that rationalism anymore. Mm-hmm. He, he says everything, including the systems that we've been holding to, the, that we've been using to evaluate things, are themselves uh, 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 unreliable at best, and actually leading us in the wrong direction at worst. And when you when you when you can you can hear Marx, you can hear Freud, you can even hear Darwin make assertions, and then find a contradiction in the assertion. But when you get to Nietzsche, he'll make assertions like power is all there is and then live it out to such a degree that it's hard to actually point at something that he that you can use in his own words to to contradict himself. Yeah. You know, and it's because it's I think that has this has a, 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 a seed, a great seed of uh, this irrationality that comes later on. Everything that claims to be a meta narrative or a uh, an authoritative position or any of that stuff for Nietzsche has to go. Mm-hmm. Everything, everything. Yeah, and he doesn't establish another one in its place. He just says we're basically on our own, and it's the law of the jungle in some ways. Yeah, Nietzsche, he we can't say he's a rationalist or a humanist. 
at all. I mean, he wants human beings to thrive, but it's because we are a part of life with a capital L, and life is like moving forward and rushing forward, and we're right. this, we're the highest expression of life, but it's life that is what matters. And so the, Vital. you know, yeah, the great clash of forces, and you like strengthen your forces so you can clash well, you know, and if you fall before others, then rejoice. The strong have, you know, continued, and greatness can continue, and sort of our own ascent to godhood where we become the creator of our own values right because nietzsche just like flat out is like look all the stuff that people tell you is true and right and rational is just an illusion of society right society just makes up stuff it's all it's all evolutionary they may it's a defense mechanism to protect themselves it's a survival mechanism they make up concepts that they can they invent words so they can invent concepts so they can invent truths so they can solidify power so they can survive that's right that's it that's right that's, that's all right. truth is is just a means of survival so every truth claim has to be questioned right and the goal is to the goal is for you to ascend outside of those uh what's the word the cobweb cathedral is how he describes mm -hmm. it you know we this really elaborate construction of concepts and truths that the society can make that's really elaborate um, but it's also really flimsy because it needs to be flexible as it moves upon the waters of you know, life, which is roiling and chaotic. It needs to be flexible, but it's also insubstantial because it's not really real. And he says that the goal is to transcend that cobweb cathedral and learn to climb it like a, like a jungle gym, basically, but also learn that you can refit it and rebuild it as you see fit because you're actually the creator of values. Mm -hmm. Human beings are the creator of values. So... In a weird way, I mean, it's it, it, he's definitely anti-rationalist because for him, reason is like, well, who's reason? And who says what reason actually is? And he even contrasts the uh, man of intuition, which is like his liberated master soul, who like can rise up, who follows his own intuitions, his own impulses, against the man of reason who's a slave to the concepts and stuff like that. So he's definitely anti-rational, definitely anti-rationalist. Right. The humanism one is harder because he definitely sees human beings as mighty creative geniuses that one day can become kind of gods in a way who create their own values. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's there. But, but he's he's hoping that human beings are going to transcend their humanness. Yeah, become something else, right? Some ubermensch, right? Uber yeah. Uberman. So it is anti-humanist in that for Nietzsche, human beings as they are are not good enough. Right. Right, we have to transcend good and evil, and we have to transcend our humanity, and then we'll come out on the other side as something much more, uh, well, not, it's not really human anymore, it's no. something else. Because in, inherent in, human, in, the, in the human is this, I don't know, um, responsibility to some kind of moral authority, uh, even if, even if, you know, Marx wants to say there's no God. He, he at the same time wants to tell you that it's right for the poor the, or the lower class to overthrow the middle class. That's somehow right. But Nietzsche wouldn't claim it's right. 
he 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 doesn't use that word. You know, he, that's not his sense of it. It's just that that's what it is. That's what's going to happen. It's just simply the strong is going to destroy the weak, and that the, and that's what you want. You want the strongest to be there, like I was saying, the law of the jungle. But it's um it's a, a transcend it's it transcends this notion of right and wrong. Yeah. Beyond good and evil is the name of his book. Right. This is how this is how evolution and progress in life continues. That's right. Beyond whatever human is you know That's um yeah the, the the character superman is a character that is beyond human right and uh now it's it's he he adopts truth and justice in the american way and all that stuff so he's not by any, no means the nietzschean superman no. but but it's interesting that that's where the word came from yeah the, this the idea of being beyond human probably the purest well, i don't know how pure it is but like the current contemporary nietzschean Sort of mindset would be like the transhumanist or the yeah or here's yeah. another post for you the posthumanist uh, people who are like we have to you know move beyond the human because that's been tying us down or something like that or the transhumanist we have to use technology and cybernetics to transcend yes. what we call human you could say one of the s like one of the essences of humanity is limitation all right we are limited we are uh, temporally and spatially limited. We can't choose where we're born and what era we're born into. We're physically limited. You know, the bodies we have are the bodies we have, and there's some things we can do with it, but, you know... But they wear out, and we eventually die. Right, they wear out, and whatever defects or deformities they have are yeah. there, even if we can fix them later. We can't choose whether we have them or not to begin with. There are, you know, cultural limitations and educational limitations and all kinds of stuff that maybe can, you know... Or limit us, you know, they box us in in some way. And because of our uh, being made in the image of God makes us extremely clever and, and creative means we find ways to ameliorate or sort of or transcend limitations maybe, but definitely ameliorate them, right. we can fix defects, we can educate ourselves, we can move, uh, we can, you know, help each other overcome limitations or ameliorate them. But still, part of a, being a human being is you're limited. You know, right. you're, you're boxed in, you're finite you're uh, not in, you're not eternal. So. It's an interesting interesting problem to have because from the Christian perspective, we see those limitations sometimes as things to overcome. We 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 recognize that the world is a sinful place, and so you know when polio invades the world, we we think it's right and good and holy even to uh, find a way to over offset it, right? To, to eliminate polio from our experience. Uh, any other defects and that sort of thing. That's, so it's not wrong that inherently that we, we want to overcome certain things. Christians would argue that. But it's the idea that any limitation is itself bad yeah. that leads to this idea that... that um, all of our all of our limitations have to be overcome, including the ones you mentioned. That is yeah. this idea of death. You have to overcome death. You have to overcome uh, uh, your inability to be at more places than one at a time. Right? We're limited in space, um, and so it's, we have this weird idea that anything that that limits us, like well, our our gender, for example. Let's yeah. say I don't want to be male anymore. Right, I should be if I really transcend, if I'm really uh, overcoming every possible limitation, yeah. then I should be able to switch back and forth anytime I like. Yeah. The denial of things having any sort of given essence or right. given substance right. that stemmed from 
I don't want to be limited. Like if something has a given substance, if it has like a parameters to it and a thickness and density and solidity to it that makes it what it is, well then I have if I want to like function properly in it or with it, I have to learn its limits. I have to work within those limits. That's right. If you want to learn how to play the piano, the piano has a certain givenness to its substance. It's shaped a certain way. It, it's, it's put together a certain way. The, its strings and all its parts and pieces are put together in such a way that it makes the sounds it makes in the way it makes it. Right. And even if you're trying to be clever, like, uh, was it John, John Cage? Cage, Cage yeah. Like, prepared instruments. Uh-huh. Still, it can only be prepared in so many ways. Yes. Like, you can't prepare it maybe the same way you could prepare, like, a drum or, like, something else. Sure. Or, or like, sure. Uh, or like, a, uh, like a flute or something. So yeah. there's limits. There's limitations there. And the way you become a master at the piano is you learn the givens and the limitations of the givens and learn how to move within them and play with them. And, That's right. You know, work within them, right? On a practical level, if you're a painter, you have to work within the, the size canvas that you choose. You, you decide on a certain size of the canvas and you put a frame around it and that limits the canvas. And then you build your your creation within those limits but you don't see the framework as something that stands between you and accomplishment yeah it actually is a help because it tells you this is how far i'm going to paint and no further i can't go off onto the wall of the house i'm going to paint within this this sphere uh, great great composers and painters and architects and so on have been shaping space and then working within the limits of those spaces, uh, and that, that that's their genius, it seems to yeah. me, to be able to see those limits and be able to work within them, uh, rather than seeing limits as something that... Uh, uh, I was, remember we went and... Uh, when we go to Europe and we uh, go to see plays in the West End of, of, uh, of London, uh, a lot of times we'll go and see the play Wicked, the musical Wicked, and we've had some really wonderful conversations with our students about about the cleverness of the thing and the evil of the thing, because there's some some ideas in it that are really uh, kind of evil, but they're attractive. And one of the songs, the in fact, it's the, the the finale to Act One is called "Defying Gravity," yeah. as though that's a limitation that you need to overcome. Right. No, like no, no wizard that ever is or ever was is going to keep me down. That's right. That's right. And it's that spirit that says nothing that stands in my way. Can, can be allowed to stand, and sometimes it's stuff that really shouldn't stand in your way. For example, gravity, when you fly, when you fly an airplane or when a bird flies, he's not defying gravity. It's actually because of gravity that he's able to fly, right? So he's incorporating, he's actually working within the space that, that where gravity, he's not, he's not turning gravity off. Yeah. But he's able, or a sailor when he's when he's sailing his sailboat, he's not working in a sense against the wind when he tacks. He's he's working with it. He's 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 understanding the nature of the wind. You can't sail straight into the wind ever, but you can sail very quickly, just a little off of the wind. So the wind's coming toward you, but if you go just slightly to the left or slightly to the right of that direct route, you can use the wind to pull you along. And, and so you're, you're not defying the wind in a sense, you're figuring out how, what are the characteristics of it. Yeah. But there are other situations where we want to actually defy the very thing that we think is standing in our way, and, it, and uh, that's when I think it becomes kind of diabolical. Yeah, I mean, if you just actively defy the true 
givens of a particular thing, yeah. um, eventually you lose that thing because the givens constitute what it is. Interesting. If you want to be like, I don't like the limitations of the piano, I want to like move beyond them. So you dismantle the piano so it doesn't have the shape, but then you reconfigure it into a completely different instrument. Okay, well, you don't have a piano anymore. Right. You have something else that you put together, but it ain't a piano. Right. Piano means that. That's right. Uh, That's right. The weird thing is, is that what we typically do is we want to transcend the limitations because we think somehow transcending those limitations of a thing will make us enjoy the thing better. Right. Like if we transcend the limits of a piano, it means we'll enjoy the piano better. If I can just transcend the very narrow confines of the idea that gender has any givens, well, then I can enjoy the real gender that I am. Mm -hmm. This creates such weirdness, like the transgender thing, because again, the word trans with transgender or transhumanism, this transcending beyond these things, creates these weird, I won't say confusions, it's almost what I call them absurdities, where they say that, you know, gender means nothing, therefore it can mean anything, therefore I can be whatever I feel like I mean. Mm -hmm. And then when they do it, if a man feels like he is a woman and so he acts like a woman, people have noted this, especially people who are like homosexual or lesbian or such, they've noted this, that they act like the most stereotypical cliche version of a man or a woman. <laughs> yes. So yes. it's like I'm going to transcend yes. the gender that has no limitations right. so I can be the gender, so I can enjoy gender. And how do I enjoy gender? Why reinscribing all the stereotypes that people have been fighting against for like decades? Yes, yes. Because that itself was a limitation. Right. 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 So it's like it's this weird situation where we want to, we think transgressing limitations somehow gives us the thing who has the, that has the limitations, but it won't. You know, transcending the human does not get you better humans. Right. It gets you. Well, the non-human, something utterly beyond. And the assumption that it somehow is going to be better is just a speculation we make as human beings. But that doesn't mean the thing beyond us, which is not human, is going to think they're better than us because they're thinking completely differently. Right. And I mean, right, right. Th- that's a little high into the weeds. But the point is, is oh, that Nietzsche wants this transgression of limitations. And that means transgressing the human. And that's why he technically is an anti-humanist kind of thing, because humanity is not good enough. Mm -hmm. So reason is a lie and a cheat. It's just a product. Whatever people say is rational is just a product of their social construction. Uh, And humanity is not good enough. Right. Humanity has the capacity to transcend itself, so there's kind of a dignity there. But that dignity is to go beyond the human, which kind of is like... You know, we have a dignity to recognize how undignified we are, and therefore we move beyond us. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So Nietzsche definitely is a much more influential because all like the true postmoderny types or the ones who like get most influenced by him all imbibe this idea that you know there is no truth. Reason is a product of social construction your mind is a product of social construction your identity is a product of social construction you aren't even there hodges well i mean i guess physically you're there but you the you who is hodges and thinking is an illusion of like intersecting social forces that's right and that's it and and since the thing assessing or or uh, evaluating those those social forces and the you is itself the product of those social forces, then what can you put your finger on that's for sure? Nothing. And that's where you get to this idea that maybe reality should be perceived in an irrational fashion. Yeah. Well, we've come to the point of the break with rationality, and I think this may be a good spot to stop. So we'll stop our history of philosophy here at this point, 
and pick up next time with the beginning of the irrational. Thank you for listening to us here at uh, the Center for Western Studies, our podcast from the Center. Uh, If you have questions, if you have comments, we'd love to hear them. Please get in touch with us, won't you, by email at my address, director at centerws.com, and let us know what you think. Thank you.